Glubber, 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 glubber. <laughs> on the one hand, they fund the lecture series. On the other hand, they have funded over, over the last five years a series of large research consortia. And Dr. Torore is one of the researchers on one of the research consortia called ABBA which means that if you look it up on the web, you're likely to get all kinds of other things as well as this. And that is addressing the balance of burden of AIDS. And one of my colleagues, two of them, are actually applauding me for getting it right. Now, the, the point of that particular acronym and that particular title of the research consortium is that it is looking at the way in which the social, economic, and other effects of an AIDS epidemic affects differentially different sections of the population. And tonight's speaker, Dr. Sam Torore, is going to speak about HIV, AIDS, and disability in Kenya. And we're very lucky to have Sam here. I have to remind myself from a piece of paper of all the things that he hears and he has done. He is a human rights commissioner in Kenya. He's also a lecturer at Moy University where he is in the School of Public Health and is, uh, he teaches health economics. He's principal investigator for the area of research under the DFID program for, on people with disabilities and HIV. But most importantly of all, he is also an LSE and a London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine graduate. So, yes, we should have a special sort of odd scattering of applause for that. <laughs> so, it's my enormous pleasure to introduce Dr. Sam Tarori. of your own. Now you need to learn a few more political, um, uh, some more political vocabulary so that the two people that have gotten their parties into a coalition from now on are called the two principles. That's what we call them back at home. So um, Mr. David Cameron and uh, Mr. Nick Clegg, Clegg are the two principles. So we'll teach you a bit of uh, political jargon of um, coalitions of not so like-minded and that's why uh, I'm excited uh, this evening and um, uh, what we are going to talk about I think uh, already my our first slide mm -hmm. will be indicating that we want to talk about 
HIV, AIDS, and disability. And we want to share with you some of the new findings that we are getting from Kenya. And um, uh, it, it, it is very interesting that uh, I got um, some of these ideas about being a researcher 19 years ago. Perhaps I was sitting in this particular theater. I'm not quite so sure. 19 years is a generation. And, um, and we, are, we are very happy in Kenya to be able to share with you these findings and to discuss with you. And uh, I will tell you a few more secrets as we go along. Now, in, the, in our next uh, slide, we say something a little about ABBA. But since Tony has already introduced the ABBA consortium, I'll only say in passing that this is one of the great um, uh, ways in which collaboration can be achieved in doing research. That um, a group of six different organizations uh, stretching uh, from Europe to America to Africa can sit and agree on addressing um, a phenomenon together. The ABBA consortium is an inspiration indeed. And uh, uh, I think we, if research can attract this kind of talent, I think we shall go very far. The ABBA uh, project in Kenya is coordinated by the uh, Regional AIDS Training Network which is a 25-member institution, uh, Eastern Southern African organization that specializes in training and capacity building uh, in support of HIV-AIDS response. And so we are um, glad to be able to share with you. And the way to start is by, first of all, reminding those of us, although you answered my greeting in Kiswahili um, in the next slide to show you where we come from so that you can appreciate how um, this uh, is, is so important for us. Uh, I think if you look at the map of Kenya, those of you who haven't been there, you will notice that we are not very far from here, but we are not very near either. And the fact that we are able to come and commune together on these issues is indeed exciting. And what we want to really look at is what are the new insights that we are getting out of this work. Now, before we even look at the insights, we have to deal with a very interesting phenomenon. And that is the phenomenon of um, how we consider ourselves. Who is a person with a disability? In the in, um, next slide, we, two slides actually, we dis next two slides, we discuss first in the first slide uh, the traditional definition of disability. 
and okay, by construction also a person with a disability. This definition is based on a medical, medical construction. That is, you are disabled if a doctor says certain of your limbs are not functional and that we are no longer able to do anything to restore, to restore that function. So you, you then become classified as a person with a disability. And this definition was um, brought about um, by the efforts of the WHO and the ILO and for a long time uh, is actually the basis for uh, most of the statistics that we have. And the um, disability lobbyists and activists call this the medical model. They say that disability is medicalized and they are not very much in love with it. So they have constructed a definition which talks about disability being the result of the interaction between a person and the environment. So they say that if you don't have a limb, you are not disabled until your environment prevents you from interacting to the same degree as a person uh, with that limb. So they say theirs is the social model, the social model of constructing disability. So that then, in this room, we can be very disabled if we were on a wheelchair because of those many steps I came down on. But if there were a ramp and I am on a wheelchair, then I would be able to move. And then I wouldn't be disabled. So the stress here is with the interaction between a person and the environment. And it is very important for us to try and understand this debate because it then informed the um, definition that the UN through the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which was the first treaty this century in the UN family, um, which was passed in 2006, that informed this attempt to bridge between the two uh, divergent definitions. So in, in, in uh, our slide number five, I pro we provide the text of the UN definition. And the key thing about the UN definition is to recognize the contribution of both these uh, arguments, to recognize that there is something to be gained by understanding the medical offer and the social construction offer. So the UN definition is what we now call the standard uh, definition, and it is hoped that it will bridge all other definitions. And before we leave the area of definitions, let us link this debate with a debate on HIV and AIDS. Now, you will all uh, note that 
HIV and AIDS may also cause disability, but it could also affect people with pre-existing disabilities. Now, there is growing literature now, which uh, started with a debate by O'Brien et al., and which has been carried on by my uh, good friend Jill Hancocks and um, uh, others, that many people consider that um, the uh, disability likely to be caused by HIV and AIDS is seen as episodic. That is, that it may be permanent, but it may also be temporary. And this concept of disability and uh, linking up with the uh, consequences and effects of HIV and AIDS has brought into light added interest in this uh, field. Because then, um, we are seeing uh, a convergence of interests. In fact, I remember that um, when we were negotiating the UN Convention, uh, at some point there was an attempt to include persons living with HIV and AIDS in the family of persons with disabilities. And uh, there was an interesting um, uh, debate there because the people living with HIV and AIDS said they were not disabled and the people with the disability said they were not sick. So, you know, it was, <laughs> it was not possible to, <laughs> to agree. But indeed, uh, we recognize that this AIDS might cause disability, but AIDS might also infect uh, or um, people with disabilities might also be infected or be affected by HIV and AIDS. And we are hoping that this idea of the twin concepts of disability and HIV will attract greater interest, especially from some of you sitting in this hall tonight, this theater tonight, that we can uh, deepen our understanding about the interaction between HIV and uh, disability. So I hope we have a good case why we should be concerned about HIV and uh, disability. Now, for our sharing tonight, um, we go to the next slide, Tony. Um, for our sharing tonight, we want to look at various aspects about our experience. We want to discuss uh, some of the issues that we have come across um, and see if we can um, broaden uh, some of this uh, uh, understanding. Um, we want to look at what we now know. What is the new evidence? We want to look at what that new evidence, what policy implication uh, it will have, and we want to reflect on where we might want to go from here. Now, when we look at the new evidence, uh, let us first make a note that the research we are talking about in the whole area of 
HIV and disability. I think the research in this area is just around seven years, eight years old. So it's a very new field of interest and I was very happy to meet one of the um, people that put this on the global map and that is Professor Nora Gross who in 2004 um, for the World Bank and Yale University were the first, was the first to um, conceptually put forward the concept of disability and HIV AIDS as a serious field of study. And I think it's most great, uh, gratifying that she's among the audience tonight. I'm sure you can give her an applause. And in Kenya, the first research effort was done in a small study that was done in 2003, basically on reproductive health. So AIDS wasn't the, the principal consideration. The initial interest was uh, people with a disability and their reproductive health needs. And then it was followed uh, by other studies in 2006 um, by myself and then um, in uh, 2006 also um, by this ABBA uh, Research Partnership Consortium. And so far, the number of studies that we have come across um, are maybe, uh, the research consortium is doing about uh, seven of them, and the other people have done one or two. So there are a very small number of studies. I think that's the point we are making. Now, there is something unique about the way the ABBA RPC consortium uh, thinking was uh, designed. The, the way we decided to run this research was to do it as a policy dialogue right from day one. So that the way we started the research was by calling people with disabilities through their organizations and other interest groups to come and set the research agenda for the RPC. So they are the ones that indicated to us what their uh, interests would be. And because of this continuous dialogue between the researcher and the end user of the policy, and then later on with even the policy um, developer, we were able, for example, to influence the inclusion of a question on HIV and AIDS in the first national survey that was carried out for Kenya in 2007. And on this, uh, on, through that survey, we were able to get the first large response to an HIV AIDS question. The survey interviewed about 3,000, a little over 3,000 uh, people with disabilities, um, um, about 2,400 from the rural areas and uh, just a little over 600 from the urban center, and that's the largest 
sample of people with disabilities ever interview, interviewed on this issue in Kenya. This was a fully full-scale um, national uh, housing survey um, uh, which was done for disability and it is the first. Now, after that survey, the uh, disability question was again introduced in the national census, which was done a year later, and whose results we are still awaiting. So you can see there is a build-up of interest and a build-up build of uh, information, slow but sure, about this phenomenon. And we are uh, excited that we can share with you that even as we conduct serious research, policy dialogue can continue. So we don't have to wait for research findings before we start influencing policy. The interesting thing was that we had thought that, um, like the WHO says, that 10% of, of our population would have a disability. When the survey came out, they said it's only 4.6%. So therefore, the magnitude of the uh, problem or the magnitude of the uh, people that would be affected would be anything between two and four million, depending on whether you accept the WHO estimate of 10% or the survey uh, prevalence of 4.6%. Um, and don't be surprised, in Ethiopia, every time they've done a census in the last few times, the, the, the prevalence goes lower. So maybe there is something uh, to think about. We, this week, our colleagues have been talking about challenging orthodoxies. Maybe it is time we start challenging whether the WHO estimate is still valid or whether it is time for it to be revised. So, that is the first of the issues you have to deal with as a researcher. How many people will be affected by what it is you are trying to do? So for us, it's between two million million. But um, we have a friend who says that it's not so much uh, a question of counting. What is important is that if there is one human being that can be helped by our effort, we must go for it. And that is why we go for serious HIV uh, research. Now, what are some of the things that all these researchers, and we will not con uh, confine our findings only to uh, the ABBA study, will we'll, 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 we'll share everything that has uh, come up. Um, what are some of the things that we are seeing when we do our research? Um, our next slide would, would show us that there are perceptions that we have been holding 
one of the perceptions which came up or which comes up all the time is this myth that people with disabilities cannot possibly be at risk of being infected because because well they don't know how to be infected they don't engage in sex somehow because they are disabled so therefore uh, even the other systems must be uh, possibly disabled maybe that's our myth <laughs> and that kind of a myth makes the policy maker think that there is no need for any intervention um, activity these guys are asexual they, do, they don't uh, they don't do those things they are childlike you know now the first thing we notice once we started the research is that not only is this a fallacy it is a mighty fallacy people with a disability are no less human beings than anybody else and of the uh, of, of all the researchers including even the survey the national survey um, and other research we believe that uh, people with disabilities are very sexually active their sexuality is not in doubt and um, they engage in sex for all the reasons that the rest of everybody else engages in sex. And therefore, they are at as much risk of um, infection as anybody else. And perhaps they are even a little more vulnerable. And they are a little more, more vulnerable because one of the findings we have is that especially people with intellectual disability get really abused. And uh, the grand abusers are people that ought to be taking care of them. So imagine you're running, you think you're running to safety and you run into the mouth of a lion. So we've found that a lot of abuse for uh, people with intellectual disability is actually carried out by their families, members of their families, members known to them. And perhaps it is because they know that these people will not be able to tell on them, because they will not remember, they will not know. Um, violations also occur even in other disability groups, in situations where they are unable to run away or, 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 or something like that. But also, they, people with disabilities engage in sex sometimes as a way of gaining favor, just like everybody else. Um, sometimes they engage in sex as a way of retaining or maintaining um, this good friend 
who has turned up in their lives because they had been told that they are incapable of getting married. So if a guy turns up and is promising that uh, there is hope here, so that the, the person with a disability feels constrained to give those favors so that the fellow doesn't disappear. Right. Because if the fellow disappears, how do you find another? So all those um, pressures kind of um, uh, make people with disabilities a little vulnerable. There are also other pressures. For example, uh, some of them might want to show that they are as good as everybody else. And so they might want more than one partner to show that, um, you know, they are available and they are there. And these multiple partnerships, you know, are also um, potential for vulnerability. So these are some of the findings that we, 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 we would like to share with you. The interesting finding is that um, the vulnerability is not equal among all the disability groups. There is differential. Um, and so, uh, again, when we consider uh, interventions, we need to target each uh, disability. We are also showing that in terms of uh, marital relationships, the majority of relationships, about 39% are marital, but almost 70% are non-marital relationships. Uh, which, which, which means that, uh, again, um, this is a, a point of vulnerability, and we need to address uh, these issues. One of the interesting findings is, uh, in terms of uh, stigma, that one would have thought that, um, uh, you know, People with a disability are already stigmatized. So what happens when disability sets in? And we find that uh, in qualitative research that we are doing, that stigma is a real problem. Uh, it, it really um, is, is a problem because people sometimes associate the fact that you may be infected with HIV to your disability, even if, if the two have nothing to do with each other. And stigma is even more uh, deadly with persons with disabilities because the persons with disabilities tend to be found amongst the poorest of the poor. So most of, even our studies now, most of the people we find are in slum areas, and there there are all those vulnerabilities and stigma. And in fact, I remember that uh, one of our researchers reported that there was an elderly lady that was staying with an, uh, a, 
an overgrown son, about 20-something years, but with a severe mental disability, but also very aggressive. And they had to share one little shack, the two of them. And the research assistant was querying how safe that lady was, even uh, in the hands of her own son. But where, where, what was the alternative? The lady cannot let the, that son out of her sight because he might be hurt. So these are some of the human uh, angles that um, we seem to come across. The, if the um, next slide illustrates for us what we just said about um, multiple partnerships um, and the increase uh, that, that um, uh, we can uh, get of vulnerability. Um, and you, you notice that we are reporting that up to 15% of persons with disabilities are in multiple partnerships, or they, they themselves report multiple partnerships. And out of this, um, deaf, they report at about 20%, blind, at about 11%, uh, persons with physical disability, at about 14%, and you notice that people with intellectual disabilities are missing because most of the time, because of methodological issues, uh, they are not able to participate in these studies. What we have done is that we have a, a, a special group that are trying to study persons with intellectual disabilities on their own as part of our ABBA uh, research partnership. And that's where we were getting the, the, those stories about those vulnerabilities. Now, um, one of the issues that we normally would look at is why do people, for example, uh, use or not use the messages they, re they receive? For example, prevention messages. We report that, for example, 89% um, of people with disabilities we have interviewed so far report um, awareness about HIV and AIDS. Um, and that is against the, natural, the, the national general population average of 98%. And for us, the difference, although it may not look too big, for us, it's big because that percentage difference most likely is made up almost entirely of a given disability group, most likely the persons with intellectual disability. And therefore, the, the fact that they don't know or they are not aware about HIV um, has a slightly different meaning for us. But what about those who know, for example, and we can use the example of um, uh, uh, condoms. What are some of the reasons that 
uh, are given for using or not using condoms. One of our research teams, one of our colleagues, is actually studying deaf, deaf youth, as youth with hearing impairment. And he has reported findings that 27.6% um, of deaf, deaf youth that he is uh, talking to say they use condoms for pre prevention of pregnancy. Um, protection against HIV AIDS is listed as 29%, 29.1%. Protection against other STIs, 24.8%. Adventure, you know, 6%. Um, but the biggest problem is that whenever we have these questions, these probing questions that ask what your behavior is, the response rate to those questions is really challenging. So that one of the um, findings we are, we are getting is that there is almost an unwillingness by persons with dis disabilities to answer certain probing questions. I'm sure this is the, the case also in the general uh, population, but I think it is a bigger challenge in the case of persons with disabilities because then you are usually dealing with uh, very few uh, numbers or small numbers. And you have uh, quite a bit of reasons um, uh, for why uh, deaf youth, perhaps other people with groups with disabilities would not like to use condoms. And uh, some have to deal with embarrassment they don't want to go and be seen buying them. Some say they are expensive, but the main, uh, others say it's cumbersome. Uh, so I don't know how you get to know it is cumbersome before you use it. But the main reasons are those, prevention of pregnancy, prevention of other STIs, and prevention of HIV and AIDS, which means that we are getting somewhere in our interventions. Um, if we move to the next uh, slide, we do show um, sorry. Yeah, we, we try to show uh, slide nine. Um, the what's it called? Slide nine is um, HIV AIDS and disability. So here we are showing the reported uh, distribution of where uh, the, the, knowledge, the knowledge base is. So for example, um, the group that know about HIV and AIDS in the rural area, are we, are we there? Yes. Yeah. In the rural area, 82.7. In the <coughs> urban area, 90.7. Out of those, because this was the, the, um, the, the large study I alluded to, the question in the survey, the, the, the males 
are 84%, um, and the females about 84%, almost 50-50. Uh, now the most interesting thing is this, that the level of education is very important. Those who report that they only got nursery school education, that is the only you went to nursery and no further, 51% um, report that they are aware of HIV and AIDS. And those who went to primary school, 88.2. Those who are post-primary, those who went beyond primary, 97.4. And those who went beyond secondary, almost 100%, 99.5. And that is repeated for all the other variables. Access, uh, the same pattern. Access, um, uh, prevention, or knowing how to prevent, and so on. That pattern is repeated. And so, since many of the disabled people do not access um, quality education, or do not access any education at all, that is a serious concern for us. It seems that education, and I think this is also true in all in the general population studies, that education is so important in how people are going to use behavior change messages. And so because most disabled people, I think uh, the estimates are that uh, just around 15 to 20% of, of persons with disabilities get education, and it means we have a serious concern. The one other thing we have looked at is what is the level of people with disabilities ever getting tested? Ever been tested? And this is self-reporting. So we have no way of, uh, of doing anything other than to say we believe them. So those who have ever been tested in the rural area, 13%, in the urban area, 28.5%. Uh, now, again, the same pattern in terms of education. Those who had only nursery level education, 6.9%. Um, Those who had some primary education, 14.4%. Post-primary, 29%. You can see a big difference. And post-secondary, 46.2%. Uh, so you see, the more the education, the more likely a person is to go for testing. The point to note is that the overall um, percentage of those who are ever tested is, uh, some studies give it at 16%, others at 19%. So that range, 16 to 19%, against the national average of about 39%. So it means about twice as many um, uh, people with disabilities are not likely to be tested as in the 
in the general population. And this is, uh, again, of concern to us because it means that um, the uh, people with the disabilities may not be testing and we need to find out why they are not testing. Some of the initial uh, postulations we, we make is that uh, maybe there are certain difficulties in um, the issues around confidentiality. In initial findings, the service providers tell us that they have issues with confidentiality. Most people with disabilities will go to the clinic accompanied. And you know that the rules of voluntary uh, counseling and testing in Kenya, especially testing, indicate that you can only test somebody who can give consent. So there are issues to do with consent. If you have an intellectual disability, the issues of consent become a problem. There are issues of confidentiality. Because who says that the escort I have gone with ought to know what my status is? They may actually go to Bush House and broadcast to all and sundry that I am HIV positive, so I'm afraid. So I will not go for testing. These are some of the initial findings that uh, we have come across that we think need um, further uh, uh, treatment. And um, finally, we, have, we are able to report right now that there are barriers to treatment, and some of these barriers to treatment uh, would include financial uh, difficulties. Um, we, we have uh, the uh, inaccessibility of services, not so much physical necessarily. For instance, we are reporting that um, among people with disabilities who visit um, health, health facilities, they rate the doctor 100% friendly and helpful. They rate the nurse about 56%, 57%. They rate the counselor about 46%. That is interesting for us because why is this counselor who I thought, or we would have thought, would be the most liked? Why, why are they so lowly rated? in terms of being friendly and helpful. These are some of the findings we're coming across and they are cause for further reflection. And as we reflect in uh, the next slide, that really what we require to deal with in disability and HIV AIDS is really to expand our understanding, expand our knowledge of the, of the uh, interface between HIV and disability. We would like to see a situation where um, a, a few studies will now 
take place not only in Kenya but in the rest of Africa and elsewhere where um, all the issues that are being raised by these initial studies in Kenya, and as I said, they're only seven years old, can be um, uh, you know, explored, can be explained, can be understood better. Our reflection is to see that in due course, in due course, um, we achieve a universally uh, accessible environment where all people with disabilities affected or infected by HIV-AIDS can receive quality services. And as we conclude, we want to thank uh, all of us for having come and for assisting us, hopefully, to achieve um, universal access of utilization of HIV prevention, treatment, care, uh, and support services for people with disabilities everywhere. I want to thank all of us for having come. I want to thank my friend Tony here for inspiring me to come and give this lecture and having faith in me. I want to thank Professor Nora Gross for finding time to be with us in this and making my nostalgia quite um, wonderful, 19 years since I might have sat in this theater listening to somebody. Today I'm sitting talking. And I want to thank all my ABBA colleagues, the DFID, for enabling the ABBA process to, to go on, and all of us for clapping for ourselves and saying, Asante San. Okay, thank you very much, Sam. Um, we'll take some questions. If you have a question, please say who you are. If you have a significant affiliation to some institution other than your home, whoever, please just tell us that as well. It sometimes helps. Please say. There's a microphone coming, actually. I realize I forgot. And I'm just giving Sam some water. Yeah. Is this working? Yes. That my name is Roger Jura. I'm just a member of the public, and I found that presentation absolutely fascinating. I'm most grateful to you, sir, for having produced it. My question is a concern about the issue of reporting. Um, if in Kenya uh, someone goes for an HIV check, if they are in the majority heterosexual, um, then they risk condemnation of the risk of, of, of being caught with HIV, which is not very nice. But if they happen to be homosexual, um, they risk possibly being imprisoned or even losing their lives, as I understand it, uh, which is not the case in Europe. So I'm wondering whether that would uh, perhaps upset the balance in some way and whether there is any uh, possibility of progress in equality in that sense, uh, perhaps in the not too distant future. Maybe um, let me attempt um, a response and to observe this. First of all, homosexuality in Kenya 
is outlawed. It's against the law to be um, gay or lesbian. Um, by the way, it's, uh, it's, it's a law we inherited. We haven't uh, changed yet. But there is a growing interest in the country now, growing debate in the country along the lines of if you require medical attention, surely it is not the doctor's business to know what your sexual orientation is. If you come with an infection, uh, the business of the doctor is to treat you and not to ask questions about what your orientation is. And it is a, a, a lively debate because I think as you know, and I'm sure maybe your, your question is inspired by what is happening next door, where there is now a law to introduce very stiff uh, penalties for homosexuality. So in, in Kenya, it's not tolerated. In fact, a few, two or so months ago, some fellows who wanted to do a public engagement, same-sex engagement, were almost linked by members of the public. And, but in this instance, law enforcement saved them and uh, they, they were saved, so they were not linked. But yes, there are those issues where you have um, certain orientation being made illegal, and that makes it very difficult for the medical people to deal or to assist them. Any other questions? Yes. Oh, a lady there, as you're as you're close to the microphone, and then oh. right. Hi, I'm Sue from the London School of uh, Hygiene and Tropical Medicine from a disability background. Um, you said that there was some um, antipathy between the AIDS groups and the disability groups, which is common in lots of countries. Did you manage to bridge that now, and are they working on a common platform? Oh, unfortunately, not. Um, I think the the debate is still on. And it is good that now it has come to the ac academic front. Um, I, I think I've put it for you, O'Brien, et al, and uh, uh, Jill uh, Hancocks uh, and uh, others that are bringing these issues now on the academic platform. But at, uh, you know, at that point when we were negotiating the convention, and unfortunately we were not able to bridge that feeling, and people with disabilities insisted that um, they would remain, they didn't want people living with HIV AIDS to be considered as people with disabilities. Uh, so it's one of those debates, I think, that will go on a little while before the resolution. Gentlemen here. Hi, uh, my name is uh, Niranjan Shaker. I'm from LSE Health. Um, my question is a, a simple one. In the, in the data for um, understanding or uh, uh, HIV and AIDS, it says that uh, there's, there's quite a strong relationship between education and, uh, and, that, and that information, the understanding. So my question is, is, is it part of the curriculum to learn about uh, HIV and AIDS at, at, any, at any point along, the, the, um, uh, along education? No, we don't have HIV and AIDS 
training in any of our school curricula at whatever level. So it must be assumed, and I think it is the case, that the, 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 the differential has to do with the intrinsic value of education in this instance. So it's not that they were trained in school about HIV or AIDS. No, I think it's just to do with that when you have some education, it enables you to better deal with uh, and cope with the challenges of life than if you do not have that education. And the lady at the back and another lady here, well, this lady here in this row here. No, this row here? That's it. And then the lady at the back. Hello, my name is Kyoko, Kyoko Shina. I'm a student of uh, Westminster Kingsway College. Uh, my question is about the UN Convention uh, of uh, Human Rights with People with Disability. And uh, in terms of education, the UN Convention might be forceful change, or in your country, is there any area which is discussed uh, as a first priority for people with disability? Um, I hope I got your question. You are asking whether in, in my country education is given priority, education for people with disabilities. No, would you like to clarify further? Uh, no, I, I, I wanted to know uh, whether the UN Convention will force for change in terms of education or um, for the people, uh, among people with disability, is there any more uh, priori prioritized issues about using the ratification of the UN Conve Convention? I think the UN Convention um, will have its uses uh, in, in every country. For example, in Kenya, the, the fact that Kenya has ratified the convention now means that um, we are a dualist uh, country, so ratification alone doesn't make it uh, part of our law. But we have a Persons with Disabilities Act, which predated um, the convention. So there are moves now by people with disabilities in the country to have the act amended to make it or to align it with the UN Convention. And one of the results of that will be that hopefully um, issues to do with education, uh, rights to education, right to other services like health, housing, and, and so on, will be brought on board. Also, in Kenya now, we are debating a new constitution. We are going to go to a referendum for a new constitution at the beginning of August. And for the first time, um, a, an article exclusively um, intended to protect the rights of persons with disabilities is, is in that constitution. So hopefully if we manage to pass the new constitution, then for the first time, um, people, the rights of persons with disabilities will be constitutionally enforceable. And I suspect that that must have been a contribution from the UN Convention and the processes that went on to negotiate for it. And 
Yes, that's right. Lead with the microphone. Thank you very much. This presentation has really inspired me to go into more research as it relates to disability. But I'm curious to know how this research and your country is responding or creating linkages between your research findings in the adult population and the orphans and vulnerable children population. The children population? Yes, children with disability in particular. What is the relationship in program intervention as it relates to HIV AIDS knowledge, prevention, treatment and care for children affected or infected by HIV AIDS, especially the vulnerable population, that is children with disability? At, at the moment, one of our research teams is actually researching on um, the contribution of life skills to prevention of HIV AIDS among children with disabilities. Um, that research uh, is, is, uh, we, we is still at a, an early stage. We haven't yet got fund, uh, findings to report, but we believe that um, when we get the fi uh, findings, we will be able to negotiate. As I told you, our, our arrangement is to negotiate with policy, to have a policy dialogue throughout the country with all um, interested parties. So we, we, we are waiting for these findings and we shall negotiate vigorously for policy interventions to the direction where this study will point to so that we can get interventions. But generally, the AIDS response services in, in Kenya have not had um, a big, uh, good enough dose on persons with disabilities, but partly due to our um, initiating the consortium, the third AIDS, National AIDS Plan, National AIDS Action Plan, for the first time again, has um, uh, mention and um, plans to deal with persons with disabilities. So I think uh, the policy dialogue is beginning to bear fruit because once uh, uh, that interest group gets into the national action plan, then uh, the AIDS Control Council, uh, that's the overall body dealing with HIV AIDS response, uh, will then start allocating resources because hitherto no specific resources have been allocated for uh, HIV sensitive, I mean disability sensitive HIV AIDS response. So that will happen hopefully soon and that will include children. Lady over there please. Thank you. Um, my name is Kim Adams. I'm one of the um, part-time students here, but I've also worked in um, sexual health in the primary care trust within one of the London boroughs. You know, um, you've worked in sexual health in the primary care trust? In one of the London boroughs. Fine. Um, my, my question to um, Dr. Sam is, um, has any of your work or researchers looked at um, sexual health workers like prostitutes or women who work in capital cities like Nairobi and with any of the attitudes of um, requesting um, sexual health treatment, um, condoms, or um, any of the treatments provided by the healthcare services, are the attitudes the same as what you'd find in disa disabled patients, or have you not looked at that yet? We haven't gotten to that uh, yet, but as I reported, 
um, the deaf youth uh, report that one of the <laughs> reasons they may engage in sex is to look for sexual favors, which I suppose, uh, not um, for favors, not sexual favors, but for favors, for example, money, etc. So maybe when we are through, because uh, our research, our researchers are in various um, points of con uh, completion, maybe that will be one of the things that we will be looking at at the end of our researches, which will be in the next um, three or four months, then we might want to compare with um, findings with various other groups in the AIDS research uh, field. I think we're coming to the end of questions by the look of the audience. If anybody has a last question, this is your moment. And as I don't see a hand shooting up, I can say thank you very, very much indeed, Sam. Being very good to <laughs> And ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming.